All you have to do is ask. This is the focus group. It's the savvy side of nine to five. Listen. Bueller. 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 Laugh. <laughs> and learn. Negotiation. This is what you do in business. This is the focus group with Tim Bennett. S T A U N C H. And John Nash. Keep your clothes looking neat and clean. We're all business. Except when we're as not. We, as we're going live. Yeah. Hey, welcome to the Focus Group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. Be sure to join us here every Wednesday at 1 p.m. East. And you can follow along on our YouTube stream, which is Focus Group Radio, where all of our social media is branded Focus Group Radio. So whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, I think that's about it, right? That's LinkedIn. Yep. LinkedIn we're kind of dead with. We've got to get that moving again. I think LinkedIn is one of those things where yeah. it's a whole other universe and a whole other ecosystem, so, right? Exactly. So in an oddity today, we actually have a guest. So uh, he'll be joining us. It's Dr. Wayne Baker, who's a professor, business professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And he's written a book that just came out, and it's called All You Have to Do is Ask How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. So he'll be joining us via Skype, and John and I will talk with him later on the show today. There you go. How are you, Mr. Nash? I'm doing good, and we're in the week before Super Bowl, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yeah. Who are you rooting for? Well, I haven't paid any attention to the teams, because you and I have always you been on the— playing? No. No. I might—you know, honest to God, like this is— You don't is, know the two teams that are playing? No, I'm not even sure what city they're in. You always know what—you know, you guys, Super Bowl fans? Oh, yeah. Do you have a, do you have a team? You're, you're, oh, you're, no, I don't care who wins. You don't but care who wins? Who's in it and stuff like that? Do you know where they're playing the Super Bowl this year? I do, yeah. Am I supposed to? I thought was, was it you, was it Houston possibly? No, Did no, I no. no? See, there South, you go. South, 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 close, Miami. <laughs> Miami, okay. So the two teams Miami, are the San Texas. Francisco 49ers, 49ers and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs, okay. Well, neither team I would know very well. I'm rooting for Kansas City. Sure. What do you guys do? Are you rooting for anybody, Garrett? I think the Niners will win, but I guess I'm rooting for the Chiefs just because they've been the longest without winning it. Yeah, They're underdogs. Underdog. Underdog. What about you, yeah. Steve? I feel I, I'm rooting for the Chiefs now because of what he just said, but it's just going to be like that. The next good point I hear, it's like, oh, now I'm rooting for the Niners. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a fly-by-night fan, right? <laughs> so I had written down here that normally around this time of year, you and I have already seen probably 80% of the advertising that's going to be right. uh, debuted on Super Bowl because of this huge social media push. But I made a concerted effort to just not pay attention because when I watch the game, right. which I do plan on you watching. You watch it? Yeah. Watch I want to be ads. surprised by the ads. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was always a great, the great fun of it if you weren't a sports fan. First of all, it's just a Super Bowl. Is, it's like watching the World Series. People yeah. that don't follow baseball year long will probably watch the World Series or something. So in that aspect, it's still, I think they said it's still, it's the only thing, it's the only live TV now we watch as a country. Well, you used to call it like a fireside chat yeah, or campfire. something, campfire, yeah. and it's got the numbers to, to, to prove it. I mean, huge tune-in numbers. Right. So I did kind of break my rule this morning, and I think that I saw a Old Spice campaign they're unveiling. They're bringing back the uh, the guy on the horse. Backwards uh, guy. Yeah. <laughs> And now there's an actor that's portraying his son, and he's giving his son grooming tips or something. It made me smile, but it's, again, you know, when we used to talk about this when we were over at Sirius, the challenges of doing a Super Bowl ad are legion. I mean, 
a your your the budget the cost is a what's it a million dollars for or ten million? No, it's it's I think over four million at thirty seconds. Thirty seconds, and then no one does thirties. No, someone's going to do a sixty. So let me tell people to get their hands out of the chips and calm down and be over. So you got to do a sixty, and then you do the spot, which is going to cost you as much as the media buy did. Up a mil, and for some people, that's the majority of their yearly budget. So you, you know, you better stick the landing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think ninety nine percent of it's not worth it. If you're a brand like Budweiser or some of the, uh, you know, Budweiser or Bud Light or some of those brands that the alcohol brands or Snickers that do stuff, that's continued brand awareness. Yeah. But yeah. when you're a brand, our, our, one of our, our old partners, Volkswagen, when they did that Star Wars ad with that the Darth kid, the Force, the Darth Vader ad. It was a yeah. huge viral campaign. And I think it was, they rated it one of the most successful Super Bowl ads all ever. Time. Based. Yeah. Didn't do anything for car sales. The car did not sell. Um, still struggle well, with the car. So it didn't change the trajectory of sales. In other words, it, it, right, but I, it I, elevated I, the brand, but not, they didn't necessarily, it was for the Jetta, I think, right? No. So you don't even know what it was for. <laughs> it was for the Passat. It was for the Passat. Okay. The brand new Passat. And it was going to be this great, you know, great thing. Well, spent all that money and it got all that viral play, but it didn't do anything for sales. Wow. And that's the whole misnomer about, I think, a lot of this click, 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 click. All these clicks are going to turn into sales. doesn't happen. <laughs> so, you, and, and yet, and, and we know this from all our friends in marketing and advertising in the years we've been doing it, and yet the money, like I believe this is the year that digital media spending is going to eclipse traditional, and that includes television, TV, yeah. print, and radio. I could see that, though, because... I stream more things than I ever thought I would, or I watch things that are um, online more so than I thought. But I do get irritated when you go to YouTube and you have to sit through a commercial mm, or something. Yeah. I, don't you hit skip? I try. Uh, or, or it will say, you know, you can skip in five, four, yeah, three, two, two, click. Skip. <laughs> yeah, then I'm I guess that's a necessary evil is that you get, they're just moving the dollars over there. So. You know, um, I was watching some programming. Uh, there's a cartoon called Star Wars Resistance. It's like 3D anime. It's kind of interesting technique, but I never watch it. Is it old? No, it's it's new. I never watch it live, though. But it's on the on-demand system for Spectrum, which would be Comcast probably right. has an on-demand. And, you know, there's always about four ads during the 22-minute the thing. Some are for kids. Right. Some are for adults. But then I thought, that's a... I would be interested to know what they charge for that space. Because when you're going to your on-demand system of your cable, right. Spectrum or Charter, or uh, or Comcast, you're there for a reason. It's not like you're not going to watch the program. So I'm definitely an engaged consumer. And one ad I remember was for uh, the Honda CRV. They were actually testing. They were showing all the things they do with the all-wheel drive to make sure the car is up right. to the standard. Now look, I just talked about, and I just watched a dumb cartoon. So yeah. I would put my money on the uh, the video on demand system. Well, speaking of cartoons, I've been watching the uh, MeTV, the uh, Flintstones. <sighs> getting in a whole. I, now I probably haven't seen the Flintstones in forty years. But now you're watching as an adult. Very different, and I'm picking up things. <laughs> well, it was made for nighttime. I know, and I'm picking up things like, oh, I can't believe they're doing that. The Dino fell in love with a with a with a cartoon dinosaur named Sassy. <laughs> And the, it was all a whole spoof on Lassie, and I was dying. Wait, wait, wait. 
Sassy. 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 <laughs> Dina was enthralled with sassy on the tube. Fred was trying to get Dina's attention. So it was, it was actually quite funny. But Have you watched this new show, um, The Outsiders? No. I hear good things about it, but I guess kind of scary. Stephen King book. It's a, it's a TV show? Yeah, on HBO. The Outsiders. Mm. No, I don't have HBO. I don't either, but you have to look for it because people are telling me we got to watch it, so we'll see. I don't either, but you got to look for it. <laughs> so what caught your eye this week? What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. What caught my eye, sadly, was a death, but it was the death of someone who I think it created an invention that was one of those things that's right up there with the telephone, the fax machine, you know, maybe I'm like... Light bulb. The guy, it was, guy's name is Gary Starkweather. He was the inventor of the first laser printer, and he died at 81 uh, this last week, actually. Um, and the cause of his death, which I like when the Times puts that in the obituary, is uh, le- was leukemia. So Mr. Starkweather was working as a junior engineer in the offices of the Xerox Corporation in Rochester, New York, in 1964, several years after the company had introduced the photocopier, when he began working on a version that could transmit information between two diff- distant copiers, kind of like a fax machine, right? So that a person could scan a document in one place and send a copy to someone else. Sounds like a fax, right? He decided that this could best be done with the precision of a laser, another recent invention which can be amplified, which can use amplified light to transfer images onto paper. But then he had a better idea. Rather than sending grainy images of paper documents from place to place, the fax machine, right? What if he used the precision of a laser to print more refined images straight from the computer? And there you go. There's, he gave birth to the first late. Because his idea ventured away from the company's core business, however, cop being copiers, his boss hated it. Fired. At one point, Mr. Starkweather was told that if he did not stop working on the laser printer project, his team would be laid off. <laughs> Don't you love hindsight, right? Um, and then he, this is him speaking in Mountain View, California in 1997. If you have a good idea, you can bet someone else doesn't think it's good. How true is that, right? So my guess is he didn't make any money for this. It's like yeah. when some of these people work at DuPont or like the guy we saw the, last week that invented bubble gum or whatever. They don't get any money for yeah. these. Because he worked for he worked for Xerox. Yeah, so it becomes their property. Right? Their patent, yeah. So um, he was born in 1938 in Lansing, Michigan. And I love his background. His father owned a dairy, a local dairy. His mom was a homemaker. Their home was near a junk shop where Gary would bargain for old radios, washing machines, and car parts that he could tinker with in the basement taking them apart and then putting them back together. And did you do that as a kid? No. I was constantly taking stuff apart. Really? Sometimes, you know, when there were six screws and a spring left, there was, get un- it back together? There was unhappy faces in the family. Like, what? well, where'd that go? Well, no, it's extra. <laughs> extra. I remember one time I took a, a clock apart and I put it back together. And my mom goes, what are these? I said, they're extras. She goes, they're not extras. They came out. I'm like, they're extras, you know. Extras. So um, after visiting the Xerox place in uh, Palo Alto, he called his wife in Rochester and asked how she felt about moving to sunny California. Her response, he recalled, was, I'll have the furniture in the street by the time you get home. I mean, if you're living in Rochester, right? So that was... Uh, you think about moving. <laughs> what do you think? I'll have the furniture in the street by the time you get home. So that was Gary Starkweather, the inventor of the laser printer, who died at 81. And let's let's be real. I mean, this, this is a device that's in every ho- home and office now, right? I need to get a new printer. Y- yeah, we should talk about that because I, I like laser better than inkjet. My... Uh... My caught your eyes a little one, but I, I saw the headline and I 
had a different question about it. But the headline is U-Haul International will stop hiring smokers in 21 states. So U-Haul, which is based in Arizona, but they have about 35,000 employees between the U.S. and Canada, they've decided that as of February 1st, they will no longer hire employees who smoke. So it's going to affect uh, 21 states. And they're only doing it in states where it's legal to not hire somebody because of nicotine use. I didn't realize that. Wow. So there are 21 states where it's, it's legal to not hire people who use nicotine. Nicotine. So the uh, I'm not going to list all this. Well, I'll list the states quick. So the states include Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Virginia, and Washington. If you're in one of those states and you smoke, you're not getting hired by the U-Haul. Interesting. They said they're going to do it because well, that, well, that lines up with the states. Those are the states. Okay. Yeah, those states where you could you could refuse employment due to nicotine use. They said they're doing it because they want to help create a more healthy corporate culture and also decrease healthcare costs, which I thought was odd since so many companies are putting people on the Affordable Care Act or whatever. But I wondered how this affects cannabis because we know a lot. We know a lot of states now. Some of these states have legal cannabis, right? So are you testing for that as well? That's just a flat drug policy. That was that is so interesting because nicotine is totally legal, right? I mean, and it's, you're saying you're not hiring somebody now. If you smoke and you're already working there, you're you're grandfathered. You're grandfathered in, but if but you're, this is any new employees from February first, so next week on. Wow! Wow! Okay, interesting. That's a very interesting corporate thing. But what do you do with things like cannabis? I don't know. That's gonna. That's a whole Pandora's box, right? Business birthday today. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. So John Calcott Horsley, born January 29th in 1817, died October 18th, 1903 at 86, was an English academic painter of the genre, which was known as historical scenes. So <laughs> wait, wait. As that's, it's written. That's pretty broad. Yeah. Historical scene. He's an illustrator, okay. a member of the artist colony. So he's, he's from England. His paint, paintings were largely of historical subjects set in the 17th and 18th century, influenced by Dutch masters. He did a cartoon uh, in 1843 of St. Augustine preaching, which won him a competition to provide the interior decorations for the Palace of Westminster. He also was selected as one of the six painters commissioned to execute frescoes there. So he hated the movement, uh, the French movement of nudity. He refused to do nude models or or have nude models. So he was known as Clothes Horsley, like a clothes horse. Okay, okay. Why is he a business birthday, John? You were asking. He designed the first ever Christmas card. Oh, are you serious? Well, by the way, he could be a business birthday because his business was... But that's creating a, commercial art. And that was the, so the card there, if you're watching on the video, that was the first card. He was commissioned by somebody named Henry Cole. And uh, so they d- devised this concept of sending greeting cards at Christmas time. And so they introduced the world's first commercial Christmas card in 1843. It had some criticism. If you get up and close on it, it caused some controversy because it depicted a small child, a small child drinking wine. 
They also designed a prepaid envelope that was the precursor to postage stamps. So when you had this, if, if you uh, are listening and not watching uh, the image, when Tim put this up, when uh, well, actually when Steve put it up on the screen, I, I immediately saw Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I'm like, I wonder out of all these guys' historical drawings why you chose this. Yeah. It's the first ever Christmas very first card. first Christmas card. Yeah. But as a baby drinking, so he was criticized. <laughs> the very first card, the very first card critique. Right. Happy birthday, John. <laughs> hey, we've got a, uh, you heard last week, and we're continuing with our, our sponsor here on the focus group called Fiverr. F-I-V-E-R-R. If you go to Fiverr.com, you'll be able to uh, to start looking around and seeing what we're talking about and why we're so so keen on Fiverr. It's a great place to, if you're a small business, particularly to look for voiceover uh, talent. You're looking for graphics work, web work, uh, logo design. And um, John, you had an idea, I think, related to. Oh, I, I'm a big, 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 big fan of Fiverr. So um, f i v e r r dot com, and if you use the code Focus on one of your first Fiverr orders, you're going to get a 10% off the cost of the project that you work with. So. Logos, graphic design, branding, video editing. Um, it, it runs the gamut. Copywriting, as right. you said, it runs the gamut of services. And what I love about Fiverr is I get asked this a lot. Like, do, do I know someone who does right. fill in the blank? This, that, like, logos are one of the biggest things they, I think it's one of the most popular services on Fiverr. And, um, the thing about that is if you think you're going to have a logo for your business, your small business owner, the first thing you think of, who can I talk to? Right. Is there a, do I have a friend in graphic design school or whatever? Go to Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. Just go right there. Drop down menu. Go to, lo go to uh, logo design. They'll ask you a few questions about do you have an idea of what you want? Do you want to work with a design partner? And I'm going to give you a little tip about this with logos. Um, definitely think about it before you contact someone. Maybe you go online, you find four, four images that you like of logos, right? Collect them. And when you go online, you're going to see that you can get a logo done for $5. You can get a logo done for $300. You, it's, it, it runs the gamut. So my recommendation, if you're going to do this for the first time and you, and you want to get a vague idea of what you dialing in your own uh, desire for what you want to see, maybe you pick two or three designers to work with and you pay them each 25 bucks. Right. And you're going to get like nine, three to nine designs back or whatever you agree with with the designer. And now you have something to actually, you know, look at and begin working with. So... Fiverr came to us and said, hey, we want to work with you guys on the focus group. And it was around the time that me and Tim decided we needed to do a new website for our company, our consulting firm. And I thought, it's time for a logo refresh. So you want so, a new logo. We want a new logo. So Steve, put up that, uh, that panel. Um, so our logo was designed by me. Now, I am a graphic designer. Um, but here's the thing. Even if you own your own business and you are a designer, hire someone, go through Fiverr, get it done by someone else. You know, I'm I not like the font on the one in the bottom left. I forgot about it. that was the original one. <laughs> okay, so I went back through the archive and I found two earlier logos that we did. So our logo is at the top and it says Triberry, relevant content tailored. 
And off to the left, there's this graphic, and it's supposed to be a zipper because we actually came up with the notion that we're zipped up. Zip it up, button you up. No, we're, we're buttoned up. That's it. You're buttoned up. We're going to deliver perfect solutions for you. But because we are in the media, TV space. and radio space, everything that I did in the earlier logos dealt with radio or like audio levels, like the one on the right has those, the th those are the, the audio bars, levels, the right. old bars. So when I got um, when I reach out and I'm going to start working with Fiverr, I'm going to pick three designers. I would I think the creative direction I'm going to give is think old movie studio. Like I'd be curious to see what you get when you say it's you're, like you're not you're not changing the corporate colors, are you? No, nah, well it will be black and white first. We'll get the logo for black and white first. But as I said, folks. Um, just go over to Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R dot com. Check them out. If you use, uh, when, you, when you do your first uh, gig with them, that's a gig, they'll get 10% off your order if you use the code FOCUS, F-O-C-U-S. Um, and again, just check out all the things they offer because I think you can smartly begin to see that if you had a small budget or whatever your budget is, you can begin to put together all the pieces you need, but you could experiment with it as well. So Fiverr.com, thank you very much. And we'll keep you in post in in we'll show the progress of the Triberry logo. Let, let, that's, let that's, our listeners maybe pick the one that they love. I throw that on Facebook, maybe. Yeah, oh, we definitely will. Yeah. All right. Hey, uh, we're going to take a. Oh, so thank you to Fiverr.com. Uh, so we're going to take a really quick break, and when we return, we have Dr. Wayne Baker joining us. He's the author of a new book called All You Have to Do Is Ask. You know how I feel about this. I really wish it were that simple. I ask for a lot of things. I don't always get don't what ask, I want. <laughs> if you don't, you don't ask, you don't get. So stay with us. We're going to be right back with Dr. Wayne Baker. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Focus on the savvy side of 9 to 5 with the Focus Group. Try, really try. Listen, laugh, and learn with Tim and John. I never try anything. I just do it. Hey, welcome back to the Focus Group. Tim Bennett here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, Mr. John T. Nash. Be sure to follow along with us every week at focusgroupradio.com. It's a place to go to uh, find our podcast, which is TFG Unbuttoned, as well as this show and all of the past shows. You can download it all. It's free. F-R-E-E. -E. I feel like a cheerleader. Don't you think that's, yeah. that's what I like to say? <laughs> so, hey, as promised, we have, uh, we have author Dr. Wayne Brady, uh, Wayne Brady, Dr. Wayne, <laughs> Wayne Baker joining us. He's a, uh, a faculty, di faculty director and professor at the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And his latest book just came out. It's called All You Have to Do is Ask How to Master the Most Important School... Uh, Boy, am I, I'm, I'm screwing up my, my uh, reading today. How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. It's Mr. Wayne Baker. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. So uh, I, I have um, the obvious question, such a simple, simple concept of all you have to do is ask. But um, in writing this book, did you ask for help? Oh, I did. In <laughs> fact, I, I start the acknowledgments with the sentence, I asked a lot of people for help with this book. And then I go through and list them, and there's easily 100 names there of people who contributed their time, their stories, their examples, research assistants who helped me look up stuff, many people. Wow. 
So the the, the concept, and when when uh, John and I first uh, received the book and and talked about it, because we get solicited a lot with with business books, as you can imagine, and this one was of interest to us because it seemed like such a simple concept, but it's probably one of the most difficult or one of the hardest things for people to do. And so your research shows that if you do make the ask, that um, you'll have better outcomes. Is that is that the is that is that the uh, the gen or the the gist? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true, is that everyone needs resources in order to be productive, to be creative, to get our jobs done. And the only way that you're going to get those is by asking for them. So you could ask for help, advice, maybe there's material resources, even funds, a budget commitment, asking someone for a referral, a connection can go on and on. But there are a lot of resources we need. And when we get them, we can be more productive. We can perform at higher levels. Our jobs are less stressful and so forth. Dr. Baker, uh, this is John. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, how does this work then in a corporate environment where someone who's leading a team decides that they might not have all the information they need or they need additional resources, as you were just indicating, could be an, a reason you might ask for stuff. Is there any kind of a stigma attached to this feeling of going to your boss and saying, I need this? Now, so... Is there a way to ask for help without asking for help, and that puts the boss in the role of being a problem solver, or does it just make does it mark you as someone who may not be able to do this yourself? Does that make sense? Well, it's really important how you frame the request that you make. So you could go there and say, "Look, I need help," but you could also go and say, "I need advice," or in order to achieve the objectives of our team, uh, which we put together ourselves, uh, I need these resources. And I need some assistance in, in finding them. Who can I talk to? Who has them? Who controls them? Can you be a bridge? Can you make a referral? If you link it to the why that is related to the team's performance and is related to what your boss needs to do and your boss is measured on and to the organization's objectives, then it's very empowering to make a request. So you actually then are saying or advocating that you make your boss or the person you're asking, you, you make them one of the stakeholders by, mere, by the stint of how you frame this, your success will be their success. Absolutely. Uh, I have uh, former MBA students of mine who are working in large companies and they've emailed me and said, you know, I put into practice some of the tools that I learned about in your class and that I write about in the new book in my team, my team of 10 or 12 people. And my boss said to me, I don't know what you're doing, but you're performing at the highest levels now. You're making me look good to my boss. So whatever it is, just keep it up. Keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you do an awful lot of, you do consulting and, and talking or working with Fortune 500 or Fortune 50 companies. And what, what do you see out there in terms of some of the challenges, particularly from a leadership standpoint? Can this... Can the, the the skill of asking or being able to ask, does that transfer into um, the leadership area as well? Oh, absolutely. I think the leader must be a role model of the behavior they want. So if they want to create a workplace culture of generosity, that's where people freely help one another and ask for help when they need it or ask for resources. If they want that kind of culture, then they have to be a role model. So they have to make requests. Uh, one of my heroes is the director of the Detroit Institute of Arts. And when he became the CEO and director of, of the DIA, he startled everyone because he would make requests all the time. And he said, you know, it's a leadership moment when you involve other people 
in our common objective to advance the goals of our of this museum of our organization so the leader has to be willing to do what they're asking other people to do it can be hard for leaders because many feel that there have to be the great sage that knows everything has all the answers um, but that's a myth that's a fiction everyone needs uh, resources no matter where you are in the organization that's a fat, you know, uh, Dr. Baker, that's a fascinating point you just bring up. So we seem to have uh, a culture evolving around some of our business leaders, some who are deceased, like take Steve Jobs, for example. Some people love to look at his style or how he ran that, how he ran Apple. And he strikes me as someone who um, would not frame the ask any other way than I want this done this way or this like, and yet he succeeded. So did he, is his success not because of asking, but because of other people under him figuring out what he needed and to make, then asking the right questions after that? Well, you, you can be an autocrat. You can demand <laughs> compliance. An autocrat. Um, yeah, there you go. Yeah. There you are. Um, I'm not saying Steve was or wasn't, um, but you know, that is one way to get things done. In fact, um, <laughs> it reminds me of uh, how my father would make requests of me when I was growing up, which was, you'll do this because I told you so, right? And that was, uh, you know, it was a, he was an autocrat. You know, he'd do it because he demanded that I do it. Uh, with my own son, who's, uh, who's 18 years old, I try to do it a little bit differently. I try to explain why I'm making the request, why it's meaningful, why it's important, and, you know, he's a little bit more likely to be engaged and actually want to do it than just comply the way I did when I was growing up. You know, is um, is one gender better than the other for asking, as you mentioned, your son? I'm just wondering, are, are men different than women or are we about the same in, in terms of doing the ask? Well, here I'm going to sound like a professor, which is <laughs> <laughs> the research is inconclusive Sometimes um, women find it easier to ask. It depends on the context and the situation. Sometimes men do. It depends on the gender composition of the work group, all these different uh, facets that come into play. And I developed an assessment uh, with Hillary Hendricks, one of my PhD students here at the Ross School of Business, and it's in the book, and we have a free version of it on the website for the book. And we've had lots and lots of people take that assessment, and we've looked at gender differences there. Now, the assessment asks about two things. How frequently do you ask and how frequently do you help others? Uh, and what we find is that there's no difference in that assessment between men and women. Uh, Dr. Wayne Baker is our guest here, and he's the author of All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. And Dr. Baker, on the subject of there, – there's a fascinating thing that you – you deal with in the book, and it's the law of giving and receiving. And I was fascinated by the categories and the criteria because there are people who are givers, like, and there's reasons why they overgive, and there's people who, like, so why don't you explain the law of giving and receiving to us? Because I think this hooks into all you have to do is ask very nicely. Well, the reason the title is all you have to do is ask is that it's the request or the ask that really drives the cycle of giving and receiving. There's no giving without receiving. There's no receiving without giving. And it's a request that's the catalyst or the driver of the whole process. Now, I call it the law of giving and receiving because it's really essential to do both, that you want to be a generous giver. You want to help others when you can. Um, you don't keep track. It's not about tit-for-tat exchange. And you need to ask for help whenever you need it. And what the research shows is that those giver requesters 
are highly regarded for their generosity and they're more productive because they get the inflow of resources that you need. Now, there are three other types that we've seen. The most common one we call the overly generous giver. That's the person who freely gives, who helps, but doesn't ask for what they need. And over time, that's a prescription for burnout. There's even a concept called dysfunctional generosity. And I think generosity is a virtue and we should help people in need, but we also need to make requests. Otherwise, people can't read our minds. They don't know what we need in order to get our work done. The, the opposite of an overly generous giver is the selfish taker. Fortunately, we don't see a lot of those, but every now and then we do. I have a friend of mine who used to work in consulting, and when I described this to him, he said, oh, those are sponges. That's what we used to call them. They were people who just sucked in everything and never gave anything back. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the fourth category is the, um, the, the, the lone wolf, the person who neither gives nor asks. And in some ways, that's the most tragic category because they're just disengaged from relationships with other people. So as a um, as your, your profession as a professor um, at the University of Michigan, how do you employ this? And do you encourage your students um, to be engaged and ask as much as possible? Do you find more success from the students who are asking versus those who think they'll do it themselves? Well, I use a lot of the tools I write about in the book in my classes. Um, in fact, I'll be using them this weekend. I teach in our weekend MBA program this semester, and I'll have them participate in the reciprocity ring, which is a structured activity for giving and receiving help. Uh, it's our oldest activity. It's one where I realized very early on that generosity wasn't a problem of getting people to give. It was a problem of getting people to ask for what they need. And then I also have my students use Givitas, which is the digital platform based on the reciprocity ring. And it uses technology. So you can do it on your smartphone or your computer, much larger groups. You don't have to be in the same place at the same time, but the same principles that you want to generously help people and you need to ask for what you need. So I looked at this and, and I was wondering if, if um, the use for this could be in just a, in your own personal relationships too, right? I mean, this is a pretty transferable skill because I thought if you were someone that was out looking for a, a job, for instance, and you needed, um, you would ask some people within the field perhaps you wanted to, to, uh, to work in. And so this skill would certainly be transferable in that regard as well, right? You have to do the ask. Absolutely. It's a kind of skill that applies to all spheres of, of our lives. Um, so good relationships uh, with spouses or significant others do make it really important that people need to express their needs, you know, what the requests might be. There has to be that give and take in any healthy, productive relationship, whether it's a personal relationship or a business or professional relationship. So you've actually created um, something called SMART which is the, and it's an, it's an acronym put together by S-M-A-R-T. And this is how you recommend all strategic asks be defined. Do you want to, do you want to talk about each letter in that? <laughs> yeah. When, what I found um, with my own students and teaching in executive education and giving talks is that when I would say smart, a lot of people would just tune out because they say, oh, I know what smart means because they've heard it with smart goals. But for me, a couple of those letters are quite different than what they mean for SMART goals. Now, the first one is, is the same. It's S for specific. And what we have found over time is that it's a specific request 
that triggers people's memories of what they know and who they know. Those are the two ways you can help. And the M, now that this is going to be different than the usual definition of M, which is measurable. And I think measurability is nice, but for me, M is meaningful. It's the why of the request. You need to explain why you're making the request, why it's important to you, why it's important to your team, your boss, to your organization, or at home, why it's important to uh, a happy family. So the M is really important. And surprisingly, people often leave that out. They just assume that if you're asking, people must know why it's important, but people don't. So the M is really critical. The A is for action. You want to ask for something to be done. So a goal is never an action. A goal is a destination. Uh, an actionable request is something that moves you towards that goal. And then the R is strategically realistic. So I encourage people to make stretch requests, really big requests. And I've seen near miracles happen when people really make requests for what they need. But it has to be strategically sound as well. So if you say, I want to colonize you know, the moon <laughs> next year, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then the T is for time. It has to be time bound. You need a deadline. And here again, we found that the specific deadline motivates people more than the general one. So if you say, well, you know, sometime in 2020, much, like, much, much less likely to get help than if you say, I really need this by the end of Q1. Yeah, or even if you were asking a friend for a professional recommendation or something, I need it by Friday. Yeah, you know that there, there is a time, and if that if you've asked correctly, and that's a little different than this, but I think it's a great setup for so it's specific, meaningful, action oriented. Be realistic, and I think the parameters on time really are going to improve that. So, I have one, I, I, and pardon my flip flip uh, flip comment, but what do you do when you do get a dumb question? I mean, you must, you must have. <laughs> There's no such thing. There's well, always... Or a, a dumbass. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure in all your experience, you probably are thinking to yourself, somebody asked you for help or something, or maybe you didn't follow the smart principles, and you're like, oh boy, how, how do you how do you manage how do you that? route that one, yeah. right? Well, uh, one thing I've learned as a teacher, and I've been doing this for many, many years, is that in any question, there is always the kernel of something that you can take and that you work with. Now, from the requester's point of view, um, one of the barriers to making a request is that people are afraid or worried that if they make a request that people will think they're not competent or they're weak or they're ignorant or they can't do their work. So if you make a bad request or make a request for something that you really should know how to do, that's not going to make you look good. But if you make a thoughtful request, a meaningful request, the research shows that people will think you are more competent, not less. So I think that it's important for people to really pause first, to really think about why you're making the request, to be intentional. What's the goal that you're trying to achieve? What resource do you need? Apply the SMART criteria and then think about who you can ask or maybe even there's a group you can broadcast your, your ask to. So, um, Dr. Baker, I, I just was struck by something, and may, you'll probably confirm it for me. Um, a lot of what... A lot of what you're going to give people, a lot of the tools you give people and all, all you have to do is ask, helps us to avoid fear of asking. Does that something you talk about as well? Absolutely. Um, when we make a request, we often feel vulnerable and can feel fearful. And I mentioned one reason is that sometimes people think that there's, they're going to be uh, perceived to be incompetent or they can't do their work, they can't do their job. But if they follow that prescription, 
that there's a goal you're clear about, that use the SMART criteria and you make a thoughtful request, you know, you've really reduced those chances that people are going to think that you can't do your work. Rather, they're going to say, look, this person's confident. They know their own limitations. They know when it's time to reach out and to ask for help. So you might be the smartest person in the room, but if you're in a room of 10 people, you're not smarter than all those people. You want to get them involved in you know, helping you solve a problem, for example. So I guess that uh, you answered that perfectly because with that framework, the first ask might be hard. The second might be a little less hard. And soon you're going to have this is going to be a reinforced positive habit that you soon start to understand how to ask for things correctly. And then life's going to be great. Life's great. <laughs> exactly. I had a professor once, and he used to start every class with, are there any questions? And he never, and you would not, this class would not go beyond until everyone had asked a question. And so then you were somewhat put on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> what that, do you think of that? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, uh, <laughs> when I asked that in class, I said, are there any questions? Usually no one says anything, right. right? There are, there are no questions. I know there are questions out there. So sometimes I've joked with my students, said, this is your chance to ask a question about anything and nothing comes back. And I go, no questions about the meaning of life. <laughs> you know, is there life after death? You're not interested in that. You know, I'll tease him a little bit. Well, and, this was, uh, yeah, no, this professor, and he said, and it was back in the 80s when he could smoke in class. And I remember he'd have a cigarette and he'd take a drag on it. And it, that's how he started every single class. Any questions? And that would, it was a political science class, but yeah, it was interesting because... Dr. Baker, a few years ago, I took, uh, I went back to school to learn how to be a character animator. And I was amazed by um, the fact that when we had a class, it was like usually eight people on a Google Hangout and you had a professional animator from like Disney, Pixar, Dreamer sitting right there. He would ask, Do, does anybody have any questions? And it was almost like this wall of fear went up. Now I, of course, being an older student, I, I went right at it. I had like a million questions and I would always get a private note. Thank God you ask questions. I, I'm, a, I'm astounded by the, the fear of... Well, there is a fear. People don't want to... And, and it's like Dr. Baker said, feel, you know, right. vulnerability, the whole bit. All right. So, hey, Dr. Baker, we have to let you go, I'm afraid. Um, but I want to remind our listeners that we've been talking to Dr. Wayne Baker. He's the author of All You Have to Do is Ask, How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. This book is available as, what do we say, Tim? All fine. All fine books. All fine books are <laughs> sold, which is usually Amazon.com. <laughs> From Random House. Random House right. is the publisher. Hey, yeah. And by the way, that's a great publisher, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they've been wonderful to work with. So thank you, Dr. Baker. And everybody, please check out his book. It's available now. It's available right it just now. just came out. Yeah. All you have to do is ask. So thank you, Dr. Baker. Right. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Pleasure. All right, so um, now we got to get better at uh, asking. Asking, I yeah, it's a simple thing, but it's it's difficult because you're right. Your experience with with class was exactly. I was astounded, right. but I maybe afraid to feel vulnerable or or look like they don't. I know actually what's going think on. yeah, I think that you nailed it with the the, the teacher with the. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna smoke this whole cigarette, and if I'm gonna stay there, it was like a it's like a Quaker meeting, you know, Quaker meetings. There's yeah. no talking until, until someone until stands someone gets up, up and, and then finally up. things get moving. It was the same sort of thing. All right, folks, we're going to wrap up the broadcast today. We want to thank Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, for joining us here on The Focus Group. Check their site out. I can't, I'm a big fan. I've been using Fiverr for a long time, and it's projects small to large, a great collection of freelancers from around the world. If you uh, initiate a project or a gig 
and you use the code FOCUS, F-O-C-U-S, you'll get 10% off your first gig. And I, and again, check it out and feel free to drop us letters at letters at focusgroupradio.com if you need any advice on the best ways to, to get the max out of fiber. We want to just thank, ask. Just ask. ask. We want to thank Dr. Wayne Baker for joining us today. His new book is out called All You Have to Do is Ask How to Master the Most Important Skill for Success. So uh, don't text and drive. Arrive alive, and we will see you in the new week. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.